And today we're going to be talking about and to our youth. And so by the suggestion of a number of parents, our angle today will be related to gender and sexuality. Yes, we are going there. And if we don't in our current cultural moment go there, then I'm not sure that we're being faithful as God's presence in our world. So I want to just say this, though. Keep in mind, as with all of these topics, we are only able to scratch the surface in a sermon, but hopefully it stirs thought and dialogue to continue understanding and applying God's word to our Antioch family in the midst of our current cultural context. Okay? So I'd invite you this morning to open your Bible with me to 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 22 through 26. Young disciples and international friends, you'll need to write that down on your sermon guide. You can find that on page 996 if you're using one of the Bibles in the chairs. The title of today's sermon is The Anchor for Youth. And once again, I'm going to be shooting for one main application. Church, let's anchor our youth in God. So I'll start by directly addressing the youth in the room, and then the adults, and then everyone all together. So with that said, if you were able, please stand with me to honor the reading of God's word. And if you're not able to stand, please stand with us in your hearts. Again, today's passage is 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 22 through 26. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. So back when I was a youth minister, some of y'all didn't know that, but I was. Back in that day, one of our group's favorite things to do was we would take a popular song or movie and we would kind of dissect it together. In other words... We would consider how it communicated its own version of so-called good news and how the good news of Jesus Christ actually offered something far better than what was being communicated in that medium. And then this hopefully taught them how to interpret culture through the lens of the gospel rather than just consuming media and culture. And so, as I thought about today's topic and passage, what came to mind was a song. And it's an older song, about 10 years old, it turned last year, but it's still very, very impactful. It's the song, Born This Way, by Lady Gaga. So she says that she wrote it in 10 minutes and compares it to an immaculate conception. I think what she means by that is that she thinks it was written miraculously and free from any flaws. So let me give you a sampling of the lyrics this morning. No matter gay, straight, or bi, lesbian, transgender, life. 
I told you we were going there this morning. She dives right in, so we are going to as well. I'm on the right track, baby. Keep your attention to that word, right. I was born to survive. Give yourself prudence. That is a word that could also be translated wisdom. Give yourself wisdom, as in you are the source of it. Give it to yourself and love your friends. Here is perhaps the greatest pressure in approving the things that are happening in our culture. We want to love our friends, don't we? So love your friends by suggesting, affirming these things. A different lover is not a sin. Note there the explicit theological language that's being used. Believe capital H-I-M. Now, there's some debate on this. Is she referring to God, who is, you know, H-I-M, capital, him? Or is it a reference to Satan, his infernal majesty, H-I-M? Now, I'm not trying to get crazy spiritual into all the ins and outs of the lyrics, but if you pay attention to the imagery that Lady Gaga uses, it is very explicitly dark. When I lived in Africa, I kind of got this spidey sense for when demonic things were happening around me. It would, it would be kind of like this tingly thing going on, really dark, really uncomfortable. And we would always just pray in the name of Jesus to come and, and, and be there in that space. Well, man, when I, when I listen to this song and when I watch the music video, like spidey sense is going off exactly the same way that it did in Africa. And so I think there's something to this capital H-I-M sort of dynamic. It continues, I'm beautiful in my own way because God makes no mistakes. And you know what? I'm like, that's, that's true. You are beautiful in your own way because God created you to be that way. But you see, it's truth that's being twisted here. And that's exactly what Satan loves to do with God's word. I'm on the right track, baby. I was born this way. What she means by that, I was born to self-identify. Whatever and whoever I prefer to be at a given time in my life, at a given time in my day, that's who I can be. I was born to choose. Don't hide yourself in regret. Just love yourself and you're set. There's the good news being preached here. Okay? And you could, you could almost listen to, to Satan come into the Garden of Eden after Adam and Eve have, have sinned and separated themselves from God. And Satan says, hey, listen, don't hide in regret. Just love yourself. And you're all set. No, no more fear, guilt, or shame here. I'm on the right track, baby. I was born this way. Now we can say like, who cares? This is just a song. What does this matter? But listen, art has power. And that's why we are trying to cultivate a culture in our church of creativity. Because art under the living God, as it was intended to be, has power in our lives. Think of how a song moves you in a way that nothing else can. And it's a song that in many ways has been an anthem for the latest expression of a cultural movement. It's the reality that we, and especially you youth who are in the room, are living in a world that describes itself as gender fluid. And that has been taken well beyond biological sex. So we might define biological sex this way. The good and complementary difference that God assigns at birth between male and female. But it doesn't end there. There's more to it. 
It's inscribed on the body through our genetic code, our genitals, the brain, and hormone chemistry within our bodies, and in secondary sex characteristics such as hair growth patterns and muscular skeletal structure. As Genesis 1.27 tells us, So God created man in his own image. Young disciples and international friends, there's a word that you need to write down for your guide. In the image, there's another one, of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. We look at that and we think, well, that's just biological sex. There's a binary there. He did this and he did that. But you know, there's so much more depth and complexity that God created and intended when he bestowed upon a person a particular sex, male or female. Now, historically, gender carried the same meaning as biological sex. But today, it's being used to describe things like this. And I'm putting up these definitions as they're being used by the culture. And there's a growing dictionary of more terms that if you read are are insane. You have to have a PhD to keep up with all the different terms that are, that are being, being used. But here's three of them. One, gender identity. That is a self-understanding of personal gender. Second, gender expression. That's not just your understanding and identity that you have chosen, but it's then how it works out. It's personal behaviors and roles based on that self-understanding, along then with cultural expectations, how you're supposed to act if you are this or that or not this or that. And then gender dysphoria. That is a sense of discord and inner conflict between one's gender identity and biological sex. Which means that youth are growing up in environments where, as guided by adults in positions of influence and authority, they are, the youth, expected to affirm things like preferred pronouns, gender and sex change. That is, you can choose by the day, the month, the year, who you want to be, what gender you want to be, and then sex change being all the way that you can change genitalia, Surgically, you can affect hormone chemistry in your body through medication. And then they're also expected to affirm things like romantic interest, where it becomes, you know, someone comes to you and says, I like you, I would like to date you or be your friend, but I am this way. Will you embrace my way and will you respond to my romantic interest, which then leads into all kinds of different forms of sexuality, right? So I'm just touching the surface here. It's just unbelievably complicated. And then the youth are not expected to just affirm these things for others, but to embrace them for themselves. Let me give you an example. This comes from Brown University. This is not out of, you know, Southern Seminary. Statistically, studies show that girls experience immediately increased popularity when they identify as transgender or bisexual. Okay, But here's what makes this far more complicated. We live in a guilt-innocence culture, I'll describe it. And so in a guilt-innocence culture, what is constantly driving us, and we don't even realize it, is a sense of being right, innocent, not guilty, not wrong. And so, again, pay attention to Lady Gaga's lyrics, I'm on the right track. It's appealing to something deeply within us. 
If you want to sway our society, generally speaking, convince us of what we individually should or ought to do. And so what makes these new cultural norms on gender and sexuality so powerful is this. They've been moralized and spiritualized. That is, they're not being communicated as an alternative way of life. No, they are being communicated as the right way for all. As Isaiah 5.20 describes, what God has said is evil and dark and bitter from his perspective. We are now calling those things good and light and sweet from our perspective and even projecting that onto God. So the narrative goes, affirm gender fluidity for others and embrace it for yourself or otherwise you're what? Immoral homophobic, bigoted, oppressive, a person of hate instead of love. In other words, you are wrong and you're guilty. And listen, youth, I'm talking to you right now, but everybody else is listening in and that's good. Youth, the pressure for you to be innocent is huge. You don't want to be guilty. You don't want to be these things. And what it's doing, though, is it's pulling directly on the heartstrings of your cultural worldview, how you even understand life and the world. And it's also pulling at the deepest longings of your soul. You want to be innocent in the world's eyes and before God. Therefore, it's being twisted for you to go down this path. This is why Lady Gaga made more than just a song. She moralized it and spiritualized it in order to communicate an entire other version of so-called good news to vulnerable people, to people who are desperately searching for good news. And so what is that version of so-called good news exactly? Well, I think it's captured most clearly in the music video for the song. And it begins with Lady Gaga giving birth. She's giving birth to a new race. And then The video ends with a view of a city that is populated by that race that she has given birth to. In her words, let identity be your religion. In other words, make what you say about yourself define reality. And if we all do that, then we will create a new society. That is the so-called good news that this is communicating And for hurting people who have no framework for any other good news, it sounds like good news, right? If you had ever heard anything different and you struggle in these ways, this would sound like some sort of good news. And listen, this is the scheme of capital H-I-M. He doesn't just want people to stumble into sin. He doesn't just want to get his claws into a culture. He wants to deceive people in such a way that they'll go down a path thinking it's a good path and at the end of it be slaughtered forever because he hates Jesus Christ. He doesn't want anyone to follow him. And he knows he's going down and he'll take as many people with him as he can. This is his scheme. But for you youth in the room, when you feel the pull of this moralized message and you're tempted to distrust God and the Bible and the church and even your parents, 
remember these simple words from the book of Proverbs. There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. Like, I don't use a verse like that to, like, do a a Jesus juke where I can then disengage from the conversation and distance myself from people that I disagree with. That's not what I'm using this verse for. The wisdom of what's being said here is, Aaron mentioned this earlier, like, you can take off hiking through Red River Gorge, forging your own trail in the dark without a light, without a map, but eventually you will fall off a cliff okay guaranteed that's what i'm getting at here when people determine their own so-called good news and a morality to go with it it will seem right all the way off the cliff and all this that i'm describing this morning to you it represents the first demonic wind of doctrine that the book of ephesians describes you youth in the room like on this boat and the wind and the waves of the world blowing on you how are you going to be anchored in place what is that anchor well this is the first wind blowing in from one side that represents the schemes of capital h-i-m and it's blowing youth off the map it's cultural philosophy But then here's the second wind that makes this even more confusing. On the one side, we've got cultural philosophy. And on the other side, we have cultural Christianity. And this is where I want to shift and speak more directly to the adults in the room. Because this alternative gospel and its moral compass is so targeted toward children and youth in particular... And because it threatens so many deeply held cultural norms, there is the temptation for Christians and churches to misrepresent the true gospel and how we react. And here's why this multiplies the confusion. When youth hear the lie that Christians who don't embrace gender fluidity are hateful and unloving automatically, when they hear that lie, and then they turn and see Christians acting in ways that actually are hateful and unloving, it appears to affirm the lie that they first heard. And so thankfully, the scriptures speak to this very thing. In the book of 2 Timothy, Paul is writing a letter to a young pastor named Timothy. Now, of course, I know that not all followers of Jesus are pastors, but all followers of Jesus are to aspire to these characteristics that Paul teaches. And how he teaches Timothy to respond to false teaching in and around the church can be a guide for us as well. Because as you know who are in this room, the teaching that is within our culture is not just like out there somewhere. This is why we're talking about it in here on a Sunday morning. Because it is coming in and out of this space as well. And so how he teaches Timothy to respond can be a lesson for us too. There are four primary ways that I think today's passage says to us, Christians, in reaction to what's happening, don't do that, but instead do this. Okay? So the first one is in verse 22. So flee youthful passions 
Young disciples and my international friends here, you'll want to write this down for your guide. Youthful passions. And instead, pursue righteousness. There's another one. Faith, love, and peace. Along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. So here's Paul's first, don't do that. He says, don't give in to youthful passions. Well, Paul does not mean sexual desires here, although that can be used in that particular way, but that's not the meaning here. What he is referring to and telling us to flee from is being headstrong and immature like youth can sometimes be. It's things like this impatience. That is, expecting people to change immediately. It's harshness. That is, verbal and nonverbal communication that is demeaning. It is contentiousness. That is, the love of debate and winning an argument instead of engaging with the person across from you. Don't do that, Paul says. But instead, do this. Pursue righteousness. That is, behavior that reflects a right relationship with God. Also, faith. That is, entrusting yourself and others to God. You don't have to save anyone. You don't have to stem the tide of the culture personally. God's in control. You get to participate in that work. Also, he says, love. That is, genuine affection for opponents. And peace harmonious relationships as much as that depends on you and all as evidence of heart change like what a picture of jesus here you know how they described jesus back in the day the friend of sinners and that's the picture that we're getting here the person who you're not letting go of your biblical convictions you're loving a person in such a way that you can, you can share those with them and also listen to their perspective and engage back and forth in that conversation and continue to love them. This is what Jesus did. Our next round begins in verse 23. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone. That word kind is another word that you're looking for, young disciples and my international friends in the room. So here's, here's what Paul is saying. Don't do that. Okay? A scholar puts it this way. The false teacher's arguments were literally moronic and ignorant, and it was tempting to use their foolishness against them because it was so thoroughly silly. Timothy could certainly show his stuff, his biblical fidelity, his rightness, in contrast to their wrongness. But, Paul says, that will just lead to quarrels, to fighting. And I'm not, God's not calling you to fight, okay? He says, instead, do this. Be kind to everyone. As Jesus is described himself, right? He was gentle and lowly in heart. He was embodying God's kindness that leads to repentance is so hard. I'm not up here saying, hey, come on, y'all, just do this. This is so hard. I'm a pastor. I have people who get red in the face and scream at me and wag their finger in public at times, okay? How do you think I want to respond 
as a young man with youthful passions. Only by the Spirit of God can we respond in a way that is kind to a person who is being viciously unkind and unfair to us. Paul continues in verse 24. Also be able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. So here's what Paul says. Young disciples and, and international friends, this is, this is another word that you're looking for. Don't do that. Don't be unable to teach. Okay? So thus far, it may sound like Paul is telling us to just be pushovers. To like not disagree, to not take a stand, to not reason with people, to not get frustrated by what's going on. To not even be repulsed by the works of the enemy. But, like that's not the case at all. When we say nothing, it's just as confusing to youth, okay? Parents, like, please don't disengage from this conversation. Don't ignore it. Don't put it on me to teach your children. You're the primary disciples of them. So disciple them, pour your life into them, and I'll come alongside you, and the family of God will too, don't disengage. Listen, a lot of what I've used today is a resource that comes from a friend who I used to pastor with named Jared Kennedy. And he wrote this little pamphlet. Sometimes we give you a book that's that big, and it's like, man, I don't have time to read nothing but a one-page devotional every third week of my life. I'm a parent. Come on. So here's this kind of pamphlet that I read in 30 minutes that I'm using today, and I want to encourage you and make it available to you as well. He calls it A Parent's Guide to Teaching Your Children About Gender. Here are the six, seven chapters in it. First, celebrate the good gift of the gender that God assigned at birth. That's where this starts. Not by like, don't listen to that, don't listen to this. No, saying, isn't it amazing that God made you a little girl? Oh my goodness, you're so beautiful and wonderful. Oh, I just love, isn't it amazing that God made you a little boy? I love that about you, son. Okay? The second chapter, prepare them to use the gift of their gender in the service of God's mission. It's not just for sexuality. Like there's, there's so much more to it than God making you a man or a woman. Third chapter, support their interests instead of forcing your cultural expectations on them. My son likes theater. Is that okay? Why don't you support those interests in saying, no, the culture's going down the road. If a boy does this or if a girl does that, it's all over. Okay? Well, that's an important chapter. I'd like to learn from that chapter. Okay? Fourth, teach that sex is a good gift, but not ultimate. Fifth chapter, warn them against sin's empty promises. Listen, it's not going to be what you think it is, child. Another chapter, show Christ-like empathy to those who persistently struggle. If you've got a child in the room, and listen, in a room even this size, we're going to have children who, as they grow up, are going to struggle in these ways. This is a chapter about how to continue to engage with them and love them in the way that Christ would love them in the midst of that struggle. And then finally, keep the conversation going. So Paul says, okay, like, don't be unable to teach. Instead, do this. Be able to teach. Able is a word that you're looking for there, young disciples. What's at the heart of all the pastoral epistles is the teaching of sound doctrine. 
And sound doctrine is not, and I've used this word in this sermon series, and I want to continue to use it because it's very important when we're talking about cultural Christianity. Sound doctrine is not syncretism. Syncretism is the blending of Christianity with a particular culture. Okay? For example, some Christians go beyond the teaching of the gospel and they add in their own forms of gender expression. Remember that definition from earlier? Let me give an example. So going beyond the gospel would be to say, if you're going to be a true Christian man, you must have a beard and shoot guns. Okay? You're laughing, but that is suggested often implicitly and spoken explicitly to men as a part of the gospel. Okay? Or it could be, to be a true Christian woman, you must be a housewife and be quietly unopinionated. Okay? That is in addition to the gospel. Are there principles there that, that could be good? Yeah. But it's not the gospel. That's not going to save anybody. Your beard. I love you. I love a big beard. This is all I can get. <laughs> but it's not, the, it's not the gospel. And so what ends up getting communicated to lost people is a gospel that says Jesus plus cultural preferences equals salvation. And listen, that's just another false gospel. All right? So being able to teach means being able to give people a gospel that transcends every other good news. Sometimes I hear the, the gospel of cultural Christianity. And I'm like, man, if I, was, if I was immersed in the gospel of gender fluidity, I would look at that and be like, that's a really crappy gospel. I don't want that. I can feel loved over here, and I can feel really judged over here unless I conform to this. That's because it's just on the same plane. It's just saying you put yourself in this particular position and you'll be saved. No, I don't want that. I want to communicate a gospel to people that transcends it. What I mean by that is being able to speak to people in such a way that it's like, hey, there is something so much greater for you. And it's not that you'd have a beard and shoot guns or be a housewife and just be quiet and round, especially the church. No, it's that you could know Jesus Christ and you could become all that he created you to be. In every aspect of your life, that transcends any, any other false gospel. And listen, this is not just telling our kids, listen, that's stupid. Don't do it, okay? That's dumb. Don't do it, okay? We don't just want to keep our kids Christian. We want to send them on mission. We want them to be able to enter into culture in a redemptive way with the transcendent gospel, okay? And here's why. Verse 25, God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Here's Paul's final, don't do that, instead do this. Don't do that. Don't be motivated by simply protecting yourself and your way of life. Okay? Instead, do this. Be motivated in your response to the culture by the compassionate hope that God will rescue them from capital H-I-M. Okay? 
And this is at the heart of Christ-likeness, being full of both grace and truth and pressing in so that others can be set free. Now, in conclusion, let me try to do the very thing that I have described in this sermon. And here's where I shift again to speak directly to everyone. Here's a question. Where will you set your anchor? We've talked about one wind and the other. Blowing people off the map. Where are you going to set anchor so that you're not blown off the map? Will it be in the gospel of gender fluidity or the transcendent gospel of Jesus Christ? Not sure how those compare or what exactly I mean. Well, let me put it like this. Maybe hard to see, but I'll unpack it. If we think of the gospel in four movements, creation, fall, redemption, restoration. Here's the gospel of gender fluidity as I understand it. Creation. God created you perfectly to determine and express your identity according to your perspective. Yeah, God made you, and it's good. And the way that he made you is that you can choose whatever you want to be. That's where it starts. And then what's the fall? What's the problem? When you aren't true to yourself and others' perspectives of themselves, you're guilty of hate before others. Not guilty before God. God still loves you the way you are and how you choose. But you're guilty of hate before others. Redemption. You take it upon yourself to become innocent by affirming and embracing self-identity for all. You are your own savior. You can make the change that you need. Restoration. What's the ultimate vision? What's the good news of going down this path? It would be a society of equality under the rules of gender fluidity. Okay? There's some parts of that that sound really compelling. The reality is you are living under rules that are always changing. And you have to conform to those rules in in order to be a part of this equalized society. That's the gospel of gender fluidity. How does the gospel of Jesus Christ compare? Does it really transcend this? Well, let's see. Creation. God created you perfectly to determine and express your identity according to his perspective. He's the king. His way goes. Because his way is best. It's a good God. Fall. When you aren't true to God's perspective toward yourself and others, you are guilty of sin before God. Yes, you may sin against others. You may sin against yourself. But ultimately, your sin, your offense, your problem is in having departed from the good God who created you. Well, what's the solution? Redemption. Jesus took on your guilty identity and paid the price for your sins on the cross in order to give you his innocent identity. Do you see the exchange there? You don't have to be your own savior. You don't have to figure all these things out. 
Jesus is saying, I figured it out for you. Not to make you feel less than what you are, but to make you feel everything that I created you to be. To remind you how much I loved you from the very beginning. How much I loved you even when you were sinning against me. I laid myself down for you. I traded my identity for yours. What's the good news? What's the ultimate vision of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Restoration. A new heaven and earth under the rule of Jesus where all the redeemed become all that God created them to be. It's not a singular society that is still temporary and still bound by death, but it is a cosmic vision of an entire new heaven and new earth, new everything, where those who have been saved by Jesus to be there in that space become more than they've ever dreamed. All the purposes for which they were created in the ways that they were become clear as day and are fulfilled. Friends, in a world where people have been treated less than human for not meeting traditional cultural norms, I understand the desire to put forward a version of good news that seems right. But Romans 6 picks up the same urgent response as Proverbs 14, 12. Remember that passage? There's a way that seems right to man, but in the end it leads to death. Listen to Romans 6. For the end of those things that seem right is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. There is your anchor. Wind coming this way, wind coming this way. How am I going to not be blown off the map? I have an anchor in Jesus Christ. And this morning, we have a display of how much greater and more transcendent this gospel really is. At this time, I would like to invite to come forward Lauren Eckert, Adrian Bach, and Brenda Lindsay. Women can come on up here and stand right here on my left.